Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Welcome to our weekly happy hour today on Trending. It is great to be with you. I was at the Catholic Psychological Association Conference over the last weekend and into last week, and I'm excited to share with you some of what uh, the topics were in conversation. We'll talk about that later on during the week. Today we're going to talk about artificial intelligence, how it's disrupting academia, the Catholic response to AI. Father Tim Grumbach will be joining me in just a moment to discuss that. We're also going to talk about friendship. We're living in a time where loneliness is at an all-time high and friendship is at an all-time low. What's bridging that gap and what do we need to do to change that? We'll talk about that today on Trending. We're also taking your questions. Numbers 1-888-914-9149. Welcome to our weekly happy hour today on Trending. Joining me now is Father Tim Grumbach. He is the chaplain at Bishop Alamany High School in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. He also serves working with countless uh, Catholic apostolates, including young Catholic professionals, along with Focus and Life Teen, among many others, helping especially in equipping a young people for the, the next generation to come into their faith and really live it out. Father Tim, welcome back to Trending. Hi, Timory. It's so good to be back. It feels like it's been a little while, but yeah, we're ramping up to the sprint finish of the school year and then getting ready for a summer filled with a lot of missionary opportunities with NET and Focus and Life Teen and all of them. So I, I'm really excited to, to keep on at work. <laughs> Uh, Father Tim, you are serving as the chaplain at Bishop Alamany High School in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, and there's a lot of conversation right now circling about artificial intelligence. I want to talk a little later about the Catholic take on artificial intelligence, but I'd like to start that conversation now uh, from the perspective of AI and academia. It's really interesting to see over the last really six months Uh, how artificial intelligence has made its way into writing. There's a lot of conversation in the editor world about whether or not it's appropriate for AI to write articles. Uh, Then there's conversation in academia about the challenge now where artificial intelligence can write a, the algorithms, right, have worked their way to the point where they're so well trained and created to write a essay with sources and we're seeing this as becoming an issue within the education system, university level and high school level. I know you're actually even seeing this at the high school yourself as well. Yeah, and I, I try to speak about it as it's a temptation for our students, but I, maybe I'm just trying to be a little bit naive or overly optimistic that I'm not actually encountering it myself. Uh, I haven't had to call any students out on it myself, but I was actually talking with the uh, one of the teachers here at the parish where I live. We have a an elementary school here and we were doing a retreat for the middle schoolers and and she was telling me about how some of her students have been tempted towards using AI to write their essays and she as a teacher has 
had to find, you know, what are ways that I can detect when my students are using AI? And, and she says, you know, there's a benefit for the teachers as well that they can have uh, AI write up like a test, like give me 10 multiple choice questions for this period of U.S. history. And that's a pretty helpful thing and it's pretty efficient. But then when you realize that your students might be using it to uh, do their essays, uh, it's, it's pretty worrisome. And so one, one of the fun things that I did with that, though, coming out of that conversation was it was in the middle of Lent and I was standing right there and I told her, here, what if I had AI write a homily for me for this coming Sunday? And so I just, <clears throat> I just typed it in a, a Catholic homily for the third Sunday in Lent. And out came this, this beautiful homily that was, you know, no effort on my part. And I could have just gotten up and read it, but people would have realized this is not Father Tim's voice. And so that's a big thing that uh, our teachers are hopefully getting to know the voices of their students. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, so that when it's not their voice, they can tell the difference. And so there's a, there's, there's something happening between the student and teacher relationship. And AI is getting in the way of that. So that's just my initial thought on it. Okay. I do have to ask because I am just curious. Did you read the, the homily that was created by the AI program? I, I read the first couple paragraphs of it. And there's this one beautiful line where it's, uh, it was actually the fifth Sunday of Lent. It's the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And it, it says something about how this, rem this miracle reminds us that even in our darkest moments, the Lord is with us and has the power to bring us back to life. I'm like, well, yeah, that's, that's so true. Uh, but what I was realizing too about that gospel is that you know, Jesus stands before the tomb of Lazarus and he weeps, right? So that's, that's God taking on our flesh and blood. But here I am reading a homily that's written by a machine. And so it's, it's lacking a certain flesh and blood of who we are and the way that the word of God touches our lives. So, you know, if I wanted to be efficient, uh, it would have been fine. But if I want to be faithful, there's a big difference there. Mm, and just to be clear, you do not use the AI generated homily for this Sunday's preaching of masses. You just did it as a thought experiment. I would have been curious if you read the rest of it. You know, was there heresy? Was it accurate? It, it is a fascinating topic. And I yeah. am intrigued by even the fact that you mentioned that, the, that it actually created a homily appropriate for the Sunday gospel uh, that was to be read. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I, I did note it. I read the first couple paragraphs and then I went like, blah, blah, blah. And it keeps on going on like this. And the people were like, what? What did you just do? And I said, yeah, I didn't write this homily. And then I just went into the idea of that. Like, you can tell my voice, right? You can you can hear when I'm telling a story that is my flesh and blood and yes. and that we share that. And, and you can tell when I'm you know, telling something that is written by a machine. And so mm -hmm. it's getting harder and harder to distinguish these days. But there's still something about the way that we connect to one another that AI is incapable of. You know, it's fascinating that you just mentioned like, hearing that voice because there are certain people's books who I know in person or who have heard speak many times. And when I read their books, I can hear their voice come come through. And mm. I've always heard that it has been said that a good writer, you hear their voice come through. You could actually almost imagine them speaking those words as if you were having a conversation and not just that you're reading a book and there's a big difference. So it's fascinating you mentioned that. I want to tie in kind of some of the Catholic perspective on how AI is disrupting academia. I kept thinking in particular, Father Tim, about just this fundamental understanding of the human person and our dignity, right? Mm. Our value as human beings. And what makes up that value, what makes it so that we're made in God's image and likeness is that we have two things, intellect and free will, that we can come to know a truth and freely choose it and pursue it. And I think that artificial intelligence really steps into this sphere, especially 
uh, with regard to how this plays out with education. It's a violation in many ways of intellect, right? Our coming to know something because it pushes aside the important role of education. That education is meant to uh, form the intellect, form the moral life, and form our consciences, right? So that we're making sound decisions. And when artificial intelligence steps into that educational space where we're no longer doing the research, vetting the sources, figuring out our opinion and thoughts based on informed ideas and perspectives, suddenly we start to fall away from that formation that education brings to the intellect, the moral life, and the conscience. And I'm, I'm so glad that you brought up the, the intellect and the free will as these uh, faculties of the rational soul uh, that, that are part of what make us human, what make us created in the image and likeness of God. But I would also add in there the memory. And that seems a, a little bit more like a slippery idea than does free will. Like, this is how I choose my actions and the intellect. This is how I know things. But another thing that AI would be lacking and uh, an essay or a paper written by AI would be lacking is what we would call the memory. And the memory is more than just the things that we remember, a, a, a bank of memories stored in our brain, uh, but it is also the hopes and the fears and the expectations that we have, which make us very human. But it is the way that we understand ourselves in time. Like there is something that I've done that I remember, there's something I'm hoping to do that forms the person who I am now. And so it's how we understand ourselves, it's our consciousness and that's something that, that will not be able to be created through AI. You can have something that is very intelligent uh, and maybe something that can mimic in a way some kind of free will, but it's never going to have memory the way that we as humans created in the image and likeness of God do. And so it lacks a real identity that we have because of our consciousness, our memory tied together with our, our intellect and our free will. That's really interesting that you mentioned the role of memory and how that is so fundamental for us as human beings. I mean, even all of our tradition as Catholics, the stories of our forefathers, it has was originally passed down through oral tradition via memory, right? And how important it used to be that we knew the sacred scriptures better as a civilization because these stories were really memorized. And yet today, because we have mm. current technologies of writing and computer and text, we don't memorize it. So in one way, since we have greater access to, for example, sacred scripture and what the church teachings are, we have less knowledge of it, less memory. And, you know, there's a lot of conversation about artificial intelligence and, you know, artificial intelligence via algorithms and, and the, all of the information and data that's poured in might have smarts in the respect that it might have data and information, but it doesn't have wisdom to go along with that memory and that processing. And what that steps in, into in the area of how then, you know, a person lives its life out based on that information and that memory and that love received between relationships experienced either. Mm -hmm. Right. And the, the building of those relationships that can happen through education, but also through, let's say, storytelling, is that there'd be the temptation to use AI to create stories. It's already being used to create artwork. And if you ask me, one of the oh, primary purposes for storytelling and for artwork is to build community. In order to tell a story, draw people into that story, draw them into the community and... I, AI just seems incapable of doing that in a subtle, nuanced way. 
that can build a community. And for example, you can see some of the artwork that's being created uh, even a few weeks ago. I don't know if it's being improved yet, but there are little things that you can look for and say, oh, that's definitely AI. And it's pretty creepy when you notice it is that a little while ago, at least, AI was having a really difficult time putting like the right amount of teeth in a person's mouth or <laughs> the right no a n number of fingers on their hands. And so you see a picture that on the surface looks pretty, pretty real. But then you realize these really creepy looking hands and these really creepy looking mouths. It's like stuff of nightmares. Um, <laughs> but ultimately, that's because they're, they're just little nuances. It can't seem to figure out yet. And another thing about the creation of this artwork is for the most part, what I've seen is it's not very good at doing the whole show, don't tell uh, part of storytelling, where you don't just tell somebody information in a story, you show it to them. And it tries to tell you what you're supposed to think. And so a lot of this AI artwork is so over the top, it's, it looks beautiful on the surface, but then you realize it's trying to tell me what to think. And good artwork, good storytelling doesn't tell you what to think. It creates a space where you can engage with what you're looking at, engage with what you're hearing, and come up with your own feelings that make you a part of the community. But I, I don't like artwork that tells me how I'm supposed to feel. And AI doesn't seem to have that ability yet. That's fascinating that you bring up artificial intelligence to generated artwork. Because as you're saying, the human person is meant to ponder and even lead to a form of meditation, right? Through looking at art. That's why religious art is such a fundamental part of our Catholic tradition. I mean, there's been significant debate in uh, the different sects of uh, Christianity over this specific topic. And it kind of brings me back to the whole conversation about education, that we're throwing out the important role of education, of contemplation. You know, I think even about how AI is disrupting academia within, you know, high school, even you mentioned middle school and university level. Uh, it, it throws out even the idea that parents the Catholic Church teaches are the primary educators of their children. Even when they are mm -hmm. outsourcing the education to a teacher, they still have the responsibility as parents for vetting and knowing what the educator is teaching their child and then for the parents to still fill in the gaps. And at the end of the day, it still always falls back on the parents and that the primary type of education needing to be given is in the formation of the moral life, the conscience, and especially the faith life. And it's interesting because I think artificial intelligence generated content by young people today, again, kind of vets, and you mentioned this earlier, student against teacher, but I also would also argue student against parent. If the primary role of the parent is to educate, especially in the world of technology, the parent becomes irrelevant when I can just Google something or I can just have AI write something for me as if, you know, this culture that we have, Father Tim, of fact-checking has been be really become very disrespectful in many ways, where someone, you know, just pulls up a phone and starts fact-checking what you're saying. Not that mm. we shouldn't, you know, check and validate what others are saying, but it's a very inhuman, even the way people fact-check today, but even worse when you see the violations between AI fact-checking technology and that parental role of being the primary educator. Yeah, it's another form, a new version, if you will, of a hermeneutic of suspicion, which I think is a term coined by uh, Pope St. John Paul II uh, during the time of the theology of the body, uh, of looking at the, the different rise of different ideologies through the 20th century, the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, trying you know, where uh, the initial hermeneutic, our initial relationship with authority is one of suspicion. 
And now that we have a technology that we can reach into and find information, if not transfer, definitely not transformation, but information, and we can use it as a weapon against one another. And so that hermeneutic of suspicion becomes a foundation for these relationships between students and teachers, where I'm not going to believe anything my teacher says until my artificial intelligence can back it up mm, or refute it. Yes. And so it, it defeats what is meant to be a relationship of friendship between teacher and student, where uh, it, it's like a friendship of virtue, where there is something greater than ourselves that we are both striving for. One is more of a guide and one is more of a student. But at the same time, you're both in awe of the, the intellect God has built into creation. And it becomes a matter of friendship, not, not buddies and we spend all our time together but a friendship where we are in awe of something and striving for it together. And AI, again, it's, it's a hermeneutic suspicion that gets in the way of the friendship between teacher and student. I would like to come back discussing a little bit more of the Catholic response to artificial intelligence. Last week, I broke down the interview between Elon Musk and Tucker Carlson about the latest on AI in ChatGPT and what's capable and the concerns uh, that Elon Musk has. I'll mention that a little bit in a moment here on Trending. And again, we'll talk about the Catholic response to AI with Father Tim Grumbach here on Trending, as well as the topic of friendship at a crisis of loneliness and lack of friendship today. Listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Welcome to our weekly happy hour today on Trending. If you have a question, the number is 1-888-914-9149. Joining me here today on Trending is Father Tim Grumbach. He's the chaplain at Bishop Alameda High School in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. He also serves working with Focus Ministries, Net Ministries, Life Teen, Young Catholic Professionals, and many other organizations, especially youth-based organizations, uh, bringing the Catholic faith to young people and equipping them to live out their faith. Father Tim, a lot of conversation right now surrounding the topic of artificial intelligence. Last week here on Trending, I hope you listened to the episode, I talked and actually played through a lot of the interview where Tucker Carlson interviewed Elon Musk about artificial intelligence. Really fascinating. Elon Musk is really blowing the whistle on the topic of artificial intelligence, especially in light of his relationship that he's had uh, with the founder of Google, diving into Larry Page's perspective on AI and his lack of morality and ethics about how far artificial intelligence can go. He even views it as a civilization destroyer and is okay with that. It was really eye-opening to hear uh, Elon sharing about the intimate conversations he had with Larry Page, the co-founder of Google, and the warning that Elon was giving regarding artificial intelligence. I want to talk now a little bit about Catholic response to AI because whether or not something is done to 
limit on a legal side what's happening with AI. There's a lot to be said from the Catholic perspective. We were just talking, Father Tim, about the role of AI today in education and the importance of how that has to be navigated. But I want to talk a little bit about some of what where the church has acknowledged and discussed AI today. Uh, one thing happening about three years ago, back in 2020, the Pontifical Academy for Life actually signed on to a declaration uh, joint by Microsoft and IBM, which are some of the current creators of AI technology. And it really walked through some clear, I think, warning um, signs of areas that need to be addressed in AI that have not really been addressed by any governing bodies yet. And this is part of what Elon Musk's concern is, is that there's really no governing oversight to say what can and can't go and where is too far. And often we usually don't have regulation until something catastrophic has occurred. And Elon Musk is warning us that we don't want to wait for something catastrophic to occur because at that point it may be too late in terms of how far AI has evolved and we might have opened the door on something that uh, has been unleashed and can't be pulled back. And so I want to walk through some of these points uh, that the Pontifical Academy for Life signed on to in the declaration called a call for an AI ethics. What were your thoughts on that? Uh, I mean, first of all, that that interview with Elon uh, was fascinating. His take on uh, government regulation and, you know, what would be our own concern of uh, how much regulation do we want to give to certain things uh, to a secular government and their understanding of humanity, whether it be informed by the divine or not. And so that's why it's so important that we do have a voice in the church speaking into this issue. And what fascinates me is that it, it is very much human focused of uh, justice in this world, uh, which is very important. I would like to see a little bit more uh, of our understanding of our relationship with God speaking into it. But of course they are speaking and uh, trying to create a relationship with these secular companies, which will not have the same right. vision of humanity that we do. Um, but one of the things that did strike me most, not uh, specifically with the Pontifical Academy of Life's uh, document on this, but again, going back to the interview and I think speaking into that document is when Elon mentioned that Larry Page said something like he wanted to create a digital god. Is that what I heard? <laughs> That's and, the end goal of AI. Yeah, you know, yeah. a lot of people have talked about, you know, what is the purpose? And Larry Page and others have made it very clear that their intention is to create essentially a deity, that something they can worship, something that would have greater control, which is why Larry Page has no desire to rein in and control AI. And that's why he's okay with it being a popular population destroyer because he's okay and even desires population control to be a part of artificial intelligence role. And that's what struck me so much because uh, especially in the language over the last century or so where it's a little bit more like science wants to create, science wants to play God. And what struck me so much here is that it's like, it's a little bit reversed. It's like, they don't only want to play God. Uh, they don't want to only be creators. They want to create a God and if, if that doesn't sound like idolatry, I don't know what it does. And what's frightening about that is that the reason God detests idolatry so much is we become like what we worship. And when we give that kind of power over to something not in our control, uh, we, we become nothing. Uh, and so that was actually what frightened me most of that whole conversation, why it's so important that the church does have a voice in this to remind us who we are as finite creatures but not just finite creatures in a seemingly indifferent universe, 
uh, finite creatures that have been loved into being and are created to be for the infinite. Mm -hmm. And you know, AI is not going to be able to offer that. And so it's really important that the church uh, create this relationship with these companies and in such a way that uh, we can listen to one another, but trusting that they will listen to us and our concerns uh, about uh, justice and and yes. e and equality uh, through the use Even of this mercy. technology. Right. Even mercy. I want to come back to some mm. of those fundamental Catholic ideas. Briefly, I want to touch on what the Pontifical Academy for Life signed on to alongside IBM and Microsoft. It's called a call for an AI ethics. It emphasized the importance of transparency with regard to the AI systems, that people can understand what's happening with them, uh, mm. you know, the general public to it emphasize inclusion, that these systems are not something that discriminate one against another, but where we view, you know, equal dignity between human beings. And so this touch on the issue of population control and racism that can occur uh, through the use of artificial intelligence. It also emphasized accountability, that there needs to be someone who really takes responsibility for what each and every single machine or program or algorithm does. And we're already seeing a crisis with regard to this because uh, in many respects, the algorithms functioning behind Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, all of these have algorithms determining who will see what items. And these are forms of artificial intelligence already manipulating people as to what to think. And I think that's really important because Elon Musk specifically talked about that. And this goes, Father Tim, against our Catholic tradition where it really emphasizes the intellect and the will and our ability to come to know something and freely choose it. Yet today with tech addiction and overuse, when the algorithms, that being the artificial intelligence being designed to manipulate and move the people in particular directions, this is a violation of our intellect and will. And only we can make decisions to pull back away from how AI is already influencing our lives. Yeah, and isn't this how the, the poem goes? Something like, this is how it ends, uh, uh, not with a bang, but a whisper. And, uh, you know, growing up in the generation, you know, the Terminator generation, and <laughs> and whenever we think of AI becoming self-aware, we think of Skynet. And I, I remember the, the fictional date for the self-awareness of Skynet has already come and gone, uh, but... It was this idea that you know artificial intelligence had had become self-aware and realized it no longer needed humanity, and so decided to terminate humanity. And it's a dramatic story; it's a fictional story. But that's where our minds go when we start thinking about the power of artificial intelligence. That it becomes very easy for those who are using AI to use it in a more nuanced and subtle and frightening way, where it's used less to destroy humanity uh, with explosions and nuclear weapons, and, and more so. Uh, to control the way that we think, control the decisions we make while we're voting, and uh, and the way that it can use, uh, you, again, use art and storytelling to sway our minds. And so it's 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 all happening under our feet very quietly. Not to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but it is something that we do have to uh, be aware of and perhaps create better artwork ourselves, create better storytelling ourselves in order to maintain our humanity rather than let to these machines, if you will, tell us how to think and, and how to feel. And I think that's part of what's frightening. You kind of mentioned some of the more positive things, such as, you know, artwork and literature and how mm -hmm. we're seeing, I mean, you wouldn't even call it literature, but where AI is able to create written text, right? And be able to, you know, put together various types of artwork. But you're, what's not being addressed is that 
artificial intelligence and algorithms we're already seeing are manipulating human weakness where let's see a girl on tiktok is uh, researching things that might be in the direction of self-loathing and next thing you know it's presenting self-harm videos uh, to her and i mean we're seeing this literally there are lawsuits right now with tiktok and meta the parent company of facebook and instagram specifically addressing this problem where the weaknesses of people who are searching certain things are being exploited and taking them to very extreme conclusions but father tim i think this is where the topic of justice charity and mercy really come into play that artificial intelligence doesn't have the capacity to really uh, bring any form of justice charity and mercy to the interactions had with real human beings to bring context you know artificial intelligence whether it's used uh, for as uh, a form of a type of robot to go and do strikes you know i think it's great that we have technology that can help keep civilians safe or keep soldiers safe but a certain respect in that moment of judgment uh, some of those decisions aren't able to be made you know just decisions merciful decisions even charitable decisions yeah, a, a conversation like this was coming up in class today when we were talking, uh, of all things, about the death penalty and talking about the proper place for justice and mercy and what one person might deserve uh, in in judgment. And that that really struck me uh, then is something like AI, which you know can sway the minds of people politically and, and in some ways. Uh, is it capable of showing us anything more than what a person might deserve? Uh, you know, justice may be oversimplified as, is what, what somebody deserves, what belongs to them, uh, while mercy would be taking it a step further and saying it's, it's a little bit more than what you deserve. Like, you know, our relationship of mercy with God is like, we don't deserve what God gives to us. It is out of his charity is, is abounding love that we receive what he wants to give to us. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the swaying of a mind in the matter of justice and politics would, you know, such a system as AI be able to go beyond what one deserves uh, from even, you know, if it's even capable of true justice to what one doesn't deserve, and that is right. mercy. mercy. You know, so it's a, it's a frightening thing to, to think the way that minds can be swayed by this technology. Yeah, and I think that's so significant significant because justice gives others their due right versus charity mm-hmm. goes beyond justice it it gives it what is yours that kind of hurts to give and mercy you know gives forgiveness right and, and offers mm-hmm. opportunity even in reconciliation and what that really brought me to father tim was this idea of how fundamental suffering is to the human person and how i think the catholic uh, perspective has this distinct moment in the conversation surrounding artificial intelligence to talk about how no matter how technologically advanced artificial intelligence may become, it cannot suffer and give its life for another human being the way human beings can for one another. And I think that's really fundamental because there's value for you. There's value for me. There's value for every individual person with regard to suffering because we can suffer for another not just out of justice, giving someone what is due, but going beyond, right? That that dimension, even when someone has harmed us or done us wrong, that we can even suffer a wrongdoing or that we can suffer to do something for someone. That's a transformative experience for the human being. And it's a transcendent, I think, element of the transcendence of the human person oriented toward God. But when artificial intelligence removes um 
for example, is usurping or taking the place of a person's job and the value that job a job and work gives to a person, or even the value of toiling and education, uh, it misses that dimension of small suffering, but also major suffering in, in terms of choices made, you know, if technology such as AI is used in war. Yeah, and you know, bringing in all that together is you know the use of our intelligence, the ability to suffer, and the use of war, uh, use within war. Uh, this weekend, I was reflecting on the life of Saint Teresa Benedict of the Cross, or Edith Love Stein. Her. She's also known as one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century. Not just one of the most brilliant women, I like to say, but one of the most brilliant of all men and women during that century. And just as a teenager, seeing the suffering in the world, she would have she found herself to be an atheist. But then she experienced the life and the suffering and the humility of St. Teresa of Avila. And she herself became a Carmelite nun and ended up dying in Auschwitz in a concentration camp because she refused to escape from the suffering that was presented to her. And the world can look at that and say, what a waste of an intelligence, what a waste of a life. Mm -hmm. But it's actually, that's the most human and, and most divine kind of life. She wrote about St. John of the Cross and what she called the science of the cross. And yes. to put it most simply is that she wrote about how it's something that is in seed form within all of our hearts is this desire to give ourselves the way that Jesus gave himself on the cross. And so it's not science simply as a, a collection of information that we can gather together in order to prove certain things, but it is a way of life that flows from the deepest interior life that is built into every last one of us. And so the cross is built into all of creation because it's built into our hearts. And that's, again, something AI does not have is the ability uh, or the desire, if you will, to suffer out of love for others. It's very, very profound. When we're talking about suffering out of love for others, I'd like to dovetail this conversation to the topic of friendship. You're listening to Trending with Tim Murray here on Relevant Radio. That's Father Tim Grumbach. Father Tim, we're living in a time in our culture where friendship... The number of friendships, even having friendships, is at an all-time low. Many people today, especially millennials, I think I saw a stat the other day that one in five millennials have no friends, not a single friend. Mm -hmm. And loneliness as is at an all-time high. And as you see, you know, friendship at a low, loneliness at a high, something's got to bridge that gap because human connection and relationships are very natural. And when loneliness, the symptom of a lack of human connection is there, people try to fill that void. Now, one of the ways many people are trying to fill that void today, especially, especially I think young people, is through sexual engagement, sexual intimacy. And we're seeing many young people who are engaging in sexual relationships uh, that aren't actually desired, but that they are desiring connection. And so they're entering into these relationships because they just want to feel something. They don't know what it is to have the intimacy of a friendship, or maybe they lack, you know, those intimate bonds with family members. And so they're throwing themselves into sexual encounters where they do physically feel something, but what they're really looking for is an experience on an ontological level of connection and communion in healthy relationships with other human beings. And so I'd like to talk about filling that gap instead of turning to sexual intimacy to fill that desire for real intimacy. Yeah, that, that's something that always strikes me as a priest confessor, again, without going into any details at all. But the idea that we, we want to be rid of our sins, we don't want to be that to be a part of our lives. That's why we bring it to confession. And we have the freedom of having laid it down. But then what happens? Well, you know, 
power abhors a vacuum, as the saying goes, and Jesus himself speaking about demons coming back into a house that's been cleaned, is that the, whatever is uh, emptied out of that space, there's something that needs to fill it. So if we empty our lives of a certain sin, we need to fill it with a certain virtue uh, and so that there's no space for that sin to come back into our lives. It's very practical in that sense, but very spiritual as well. And when we have young people, especially, I think this is in all of our hearts as well, but young people who are not taught how to have healthy, intimate friendships uh, with the other sex or with someone that they might be attracted to, that the only relationship that they can possibly imagine is a, of sexual nature. And so without even being taught how to be friends first, they enter into these encounters and then are left failing even emptier than they were before. And I think we can all say that maybe we've had some kind of encounter of feeling that emptiness because of friendship and not knowing how to have a healthy intimacy with other people. And I think that's where sin comes up anyways in every situation. So our young people are especially seeing this with the, uh, you know, they, they have a greater desire, it feels like, than ever to have communion, to have community and friendship but without the ability to have that in healthy ways, uh, when they have these sexual encounters, it becomes emptier than it ever has been before. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a frightening thing, but there's a lot of hope because I see in these young people, they do have a great desire for communion and justice and mercy. It's there. Just they, they're not being taught how to do it. Mm -hmm. I agree. You know, I want to touch just for a moment because I'm still thinking about it. I just came off of uh, about four days at the Catholic Psychological Association retreat. And a lot of what was discussed was attachment theory and how fundamental attachment is and how that's really fostered, you know, even looking into a lot of the psychological research, attachment happens in those fundamental early years between a mother and a child. And that's why, you know, a mother's presence is so fundamental. The biological reality, the dependence of the child on the mother and the mother nourishing the child uh, is actually meant to help in forming those proper attachments. And so we have a whole generation of people today, multiple generations, all the way from Gen X, I would say, downward. Divorce became a norm where uh, mothers not being present in the upbringing of their children became a norm where young people ha have not developed proper attachments. Uh, they don't know how to develop proper attachments. Uh, there's also a lack of affirmation of individuals. And so some people are so unaffirmed in the respect that they haven't uh, felt like they've been given what they needed, so they're not able to give in their relationships. That makes it hard to enter into relationships and friendships. And so I think often, Father Tim, there's need for healing, sometimes outright psychological healing from those wounds. So I always recommend catholictherapist.com. Find a Catholic therapist. I, I think that not enough people are seeking help and healing from these uh, lack of affirmation and attachment bonds that needed to occur early on. But also from there learning, okay, well, now that I've addressed this attachment a kind of disorder that I have uh, and this lack of affirmation, how do I then, now that I've kind of received this gift of myself, I'm more at peace with myself, how do I move forward into pursuing relationships? And I think that's the key question, Father Tim. Yeah, and you're so right about just, it's, it's beautiful how we are created that we can look out into the animal kingdom and you see all these animals that are like, they're walking as soon as they're born and they don't need their parents to teach them how to walk and, and hold them and carry them in so many ways. But it's built into our humanity. This is God's creativity that we are in need of these attachments in healthy ways. We are in, in need of being taken care of. 
And so our whole identity is wrapped up in the people who care for us and nourish us and nurture us as we're growing up. So naturally, there is some tension as teenagers begin to recognize their own identity and their independence. And it's not necessarily a good thing, but it's a natural thing. But what does make it good is what makes it supernatural, is that it teaches us that we are in need of being able to forgive. And our family is the primary place where we learn mercy and forgiveness and love. I mean, how creative is God in that? Is that he has built it into our very human nature and the way that we grow up, our need for uh, the ability to have mercy and to love and to show forgiveness for one another. And that's what causes a lot of tension in those teenage Mm -hmm. years. But Mm -hmm. God is able to use that tension to create fully formed human beings. And I'm just thinking practically, you know, how do we encourage the forming of proper attachments and relationships, stepping away from this falling into sexual engagements? I think it's, you know, pursue, pursue friendships. Sometimes I think we wait to be pursued and pursuing friendships is a good thing. That doesn't mean you don't test to see if this is a good, healthy relationship, but to pursue, you know, people who have common interests, people, maybe you see someone at church who just looks interesting to you, you know, pray, the Holy Spirit, you know, reveal to me someone who I can pursue a friendship with. You know, I think this is why sports sometimes in, you know, those younger years of high school and and down, uh, they offer the opportunity for friendship because you can come along side by side with someone and enjoy a common interest. And it gives you an opportunity to discuss and ponder something. And that allows for intimacy, the intimacy of experience, the intimacy of discussion, of proximity. But that requires that we pursue and don't always wait for someone else to find us. Yeah, and I would add also that you know, detachment as complementary to attachment is super important for our human development as well. And when we hear the word detachment, we think we care less about something. But the reality is it's actually we care more about it because we are caring at it and we're looking at it the way that God looks at it. And so we're ready to let go of it when it's no longer ours. We do not try to possess it. But in that way, we are able to love it or love that person even more through a healthy detachment uh, and an attachment that does not get in the way of our relationship with God and others. That's Father Tim Grumbach here on Trending with Tim Murray. Thank you so much for joining us, Father Tim, today. We'll tag him on social media. You can find him. That's Father Tim Grumbach. I'll be right back today on Trending. We're going to talk about your questions. A couple really interesting questions come, came in uh, on today's happy hour related to abortion. I've got a good one for you uh, to discuss, as well as challenges for women's health. We'll be right back. Listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. Welcome back. And by the way, stay with us. Coming up next is the Family Rosary Across America. And Father Richard Simon from Father Simon Says will be joining us here to pray with you, the Family Rosary. So stay with us and you can pray with Father Simon. Okay, questions are coming in. Shelly from Los Angeles asked, do you know how I can find a doctor who won't suggest the pill for my 13-year-old daughter for severe cramping and light headaches? So this is new to me. I've never had these severe issues and she's looking for help and direction. Okay, really great. There's a lot that we can talk about. Um, I think that it's important to start with 
a episode that we did here on trending specifically addressing irregular periods and treating intense cramps and we actually haven't talked by the way about menopause and sleepnessness as well with dr susan caldwell she specializes in women's health and fertility and she's a napro trained physician solid catholic really focusing on solutions I can also speak to my experience. This is something I too experienced with the heavy cramping and lightheadedness. And I ended up finding out that after many people, you know, recommended just take more painkillers, just throw a heating pad on. Maybe you should try birth control. Um, I never tried birth control, uh, but thank God because of the concern over the morality. But also I knew that it was unhealthy. It was bad for our bodies as women. I've talked about that many times before here on Trending. We'll post a link to one of those episodes. Why contraception is bad for our bodies. Group 1 carcinogens leading to blood clotting. It impacts our emotions, damages our fertility later on. So much could be said. But I'm posting a link on social media to this episode where I talk about female hacks and addressing irregular periods and things such as cramps. Uh, there we'll t- we actually talk with Dr. Caldwell about finding a NAPRO physician to actually address underlining health issues. So for me, I had polycystic ovarian syndrome syndrome and Hashimoto's disease. Praise the Lord, both of those have been reversed for me after a number of years of hard work, including dieting, a healthy diet for me, and uh, proper nutrition and addressing some of those uh, biomarkers that were really off for me uh, that were contributing to those two Hashimoto's and PCOS. It can also be a sign of endometriosis as well, or sometimes a hormone imbalance. Uh, Diet, stress, so many things play a part in that. So we talk about that and include some really great resources in that episode. I hope you will check it out because I know a lot of women are really struggling and it's a reason why many people turn to the pill. And I know, Shelly, you included in your message, you're like, I'm trying essential oils. I'm trying painkillers. Things aren't working. What do I do? And I think this is also another concern, you know, being on perpetual painkillers for, you know, however number of days it is that those cramps are bad. That's so bad for our bodies in and of itself. A lot of people are having issues with ulcers, among other things, from being on so many painkillers today. Uh, so I think that's really important to find those solutions and help. And often it's an underlying health condition for many women today. And mainstream uh, medicine today is not addressing our needs as women because they just say, hey, take birth control and that's your end all be all. But that's also putting a chemical bomb in our bodies that damages our future fertility and has major health consequences, emotional consequences, and especially for a teen girl, Shelly, please don't put your daughter on the pill, especially for a teen girl. It is so damaging because we know even study came out a few years ago from JAMA, one of the, one of the key journals on psychology, and it shows the link between teenage girls taking hormonal birth control and the damage done to the development of the brain, especially what regulates emotion and reason. And that's really fundamental. It's basically leading to a lifetime of anxiety for young girls because the development of their bodies and their brains are being impacted by improper levels of hormones in their bodies because women's bodies are incredible our bodies are supposed to have different levels of estrogen and progesterone and the other hormones that impact at every different day of the month and if they're all just a baseline or being 
impacted to be function just one way. That's actually not how our bodies are made. Our bodies are made to be a different hormonal makeup every single day because that hormonal makeup can impact the function of pregnancy, the potential for pregnancy, the sustaining of a baby, a new baby in the womb. And that's what our cycles are oriented toward, the building up to the potential for new life. And then if that new life were to begin, the fostering of that new life once it has begun. That's why hormones matter. And that's why when we go to bad choices for fixing simple things, what may seem simple to some, such as cramps, it's actually a big deal. And chronic cramps can be really difficult. It makes it difficult to function in life. And it can be a reason why some people, I've heard it, why some people are terrified of pregnancy. Because they said, if my cramps were this bad, what will pregnancy, what will labor be like? So it really is a pro-life issue we need to be weighing in on. So we posted those links on social media. And I have a ton of links in the episode notes where I mentioned crate and model teachers to get on top of tracking fertility. I mentioned napro physicians, even telehealth napro physicians. If you don't have one near your area, because we're posting a link to that as well for where you can find those napro physicians. We'll also include a link for telemedicine where you can meet if uh, via telemedicine if you can't find one close enough to you in person. You're listening to Trending with Tim Murray here on Relevant Radio. Oh, how much time do we have? This is a really great question that came in last week, and I want to make sure that we address. Uh, this question was, How do you? what do you say to a couple where the mother has died uh, after giving birth and the father didn't believe in abortion? Like, what do you say to a couple when maybe they're considering whether or not to have an abortion? Because here's the deal. You know, people are commenting that abortion is a two-way street, and and you know, this one person who's pro-abortion said you can't have forced pregnancy and you can't force a woman to give her life. Oh, that's a really heated question. I think it's one of the more difficult questions where what about the health of the mother? What if something's going on with the mother and there is a risk to her health? I think it's important to start with a baseline that no OBGYN, in fact, 80%, 8 out of 10 OBGYNs, more than that actually, do not perform abortions. Why? Because abortion is not a life-saving procedure for women. It never has and it never will be. But the propaganda of the pro-abortion movement says that we need abortion to, quote-unquote, save the life of the mother at times. No, we never need to intentionally go in and kill a mother's baby so that the mother can live. Now, there may be a reason for an early delivery so that mom can receive treatment and care that she may need, but there's never a reason to go in and intentionally lethally kill a baby. And that's really important. I did a whole episode on this with OBGYN Dr. John Buchowski. He actually performed abortions for a season in his life. He deeply regrets it, and he has worked firsthand, especially on the specific issue that women do not need abortion and that there's tons of life-saving care that does not require a woman and a child, a mother and a child, to be placed in war against one another, fighting for one life versus the other. I also think it's important to recognize that this question would never be asked if we were talking about a six-month-old or a one-year-old. No one would say, you know what? Yeah, we should kill that one-year-old because it's too much work for that mom to care for her baby. We shouldn't. We would never say, yeah, we should kill that three-month-old because that's too much work for a woman to care for that baby. 
We would never say that. And so what this theory is, is that you trot out the toddler, the idea that we only say that it's okay to have abortion because it's big people picking on little people. It's people who can't see the development of the baby in the womb, and yet we can see a little child outside the womb. So because that baby's in an earlier stage of development, we justify killing the baby. Or because the baby's dependent inside the womb and not side, not outside of the womb, we justify an environmental change, so we justify abortion. Or because that baby's dependent on the mother in a different way inside of the womb versus outside of the womb, people justify abortion. But again, abortion isn't life-saving care. Early delivery may be necessary, but not the intentional lethal killing of a baby. Even in early delivery when there's a possible chance that that baby might not survive if it's believed that that's a necessary intervention. And I think that's a really important distinction. I posted a link on this specific topic with Dr. John Buchowski. Coming up, Father Simon Says is praying the rosary with you here on Relevant Radio. This is Tim Ray from Trending with Tim Ray. Tuesday on Trending, we're going to talk about shame. Is shame a good thing, a bad thing? It'll tie into the whole conversation of Catholic guilt. It'll talk about everything from what happens when we sin. So stay with me. It's a fascinating conversation that we all need to ponder the role of shame in our lives and how it goes back to that original fall of Adam and Eve. We're also going to talk about St. Mark on his feast day. That's one of the four gospel writers. So join me daily, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio.